0: Ages three to six can be dismissed for children's church. If you know the story of Esther, you know that they added a couple or omitted a couple of details at the end there for the kid-friendly version. One of them being Haman being hung from his own gallows. I believe they were ninety feet tall. So there was a uh, few things that happened at the end of that story. Yet, I would invite you to bow with me and let's pray once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have inspired it by your Holy Spirit, speaking through men of old, that they are still living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword for us today. We ask, speak to them by your Spirit. Give us hearts to receive. Give us uh, spirits, Lord, to agree. And we pray that you would give us the courage to live it out in our personal lives day to day. Pray that you would speak through me, your servants. May the words be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we have come to part 21 of our series in Mark, entitled, A Demonic Nightmare in a Graveyard. There is an old story told of a man who had been walking home from work one night, and part of his route coming home from work was to walk through a graveyard. And so on this particular night, he had been working late, and so he comes through the graveyard after dark. And as he's skipping through one of the rows of graves, he didn't realize that there was an open grave that had just freshly been dug in front of him, and so he fell straight into the seven-foot-deep grave. At first, he tries to get out by any way he can, but he just can't get out, and finally, realizing it's futile, he settles down at the bottom of the grave to wait out the night. Well, about an hour later, there's a farmer He's out possum hunting and he comes walking through the cemetery and he too falls into the grave. Well, unaware that there's someone else already in the grave, the farmer also begins his desperate attempt to try to climb his way out. Well, amused, the first man sitting in the corner listened to him for a minute or two. But then finally, after the farmer had given up on his efforts, in the darkness, he reached out his hand, laid it on the farmer's shoulder, and quietly said, Relax, you can't escape the grave. And wouldn't you know it, that farmer proved him wrong. (laughs) Legend has it the farmer is still running. Now, if you think that that would be a nightmare scenario in a graveyard, this morning's text we're going to be looking at a real life demonic nightmare in a graveyard mark chapter 5 has this incredible story for us so please take your bibles and turn there with me this morning mark chapter 5 this is one of the most detailed accounts in all of the gospels three of the gospels record this event mark being the first of course and so this is an absolutely incredible and and hair-raising story Beginning in verse 1, let's read through the first portion to the end of verse 6. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees before him. Now, as we read this, the text doesn't say, but I suspect, as this scenario is folding, uh, unfolding before them, that the disciples seeing this demonic man running straight towards them that more than one of them thought, let's get back in the boat. (laughs) Let's get back in and maybe just put out into the water just a little bit. But as we'll see now in this first slide, we have some pictures to go along this morning to help us visualize this story. In this first slide, we see that Jesus doesn't get back in the boat. No, Jesus calmly steps forward towards this wild man running straight towards them, and it says that Jesus meets the man. He meets the man. Now, let's take a closer look here at the man himself. This man is in an absolutely wretched condition. If we can get those slides up there, we'll have a better picture of what he, of what he may have looked like to visualize. Now, the first thing the text tells us about this man is the obvious, He has evil spirits inhabiting him. Now, the first says it in the singular tense. However, later on, we we will learn that it's not just one evil spirit. It is a multitude of evil spirits. So it begs the first question, how did this demoniac, this man, how did he come to be afflicted by demons? How did he come to be possessed by not only one, but many? Well, this detail we're not told. All we know for certain is that at some point in this man's life, clearly, something had happened whereby he had either knowingly or possibly more likely, unknowingly, inadvertently, he had opened the door of his life to demonic influence and forces. Now, many people, even some Christians, don't think of Satan or his demons as being real, personal beings. They they don't think of them as being something that can afflict or possess someone. But again and again, the scriptures make it very clear that, that Satan and his demons are real. They are personal beings. They have their own entity, their own being, their own thoughts, their own actions. They are just as real as you or me. Ephesians 6 verse 12 states it clearly. Our war is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the fact is that the demonic forces are very real, very dangerous and yes, very active. 1 Peter 5:8 tells us, "Be alert and of sober mind for your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so here, this man is being devoured. In, in, in almost every sense imaginable, this man is being devoured by the enemy. His life has been completely overcome by evil. Now, in our time and place here in Canada, I've shared this before, especially in our previous sermon series last year on spiritual warfare, But I've talked about how in our time and place here in Canada and in the Western civilization in general, many of Satan's schemes against us are still relatively camouflaged. He he is subtle. He is cunning to kind of keep a lower profile in order to keep us from realizing that he is the one actually behind these things. However, we can look at history and as well at other cultures to see how when both individual people, but then the culture collectively, as a whole, continues to reject God, the true God, they reject Him, then they continue to move further and further into the darkness of sin, then Satan and his demonic forces will begin to increasingly be emboldened, to come out more and more into the open and increasingly overt ways that become more obvious. To the extent of where, well, we know it's the enemy at work here. There's there's no other option. And so from that point forward, once a a society has fully given itself over to to evil, Satan essentially wants to come right out into the open to be worshipped directly. And we can see multiple examples of this, especially in the Old Testament of, of whole societies, even Israel, when they give themselves over entirely to the worship of pagan gods demonically inhabited like the like the pagan god of baal where they would actually have their children as part of the the worship ceremony in the morning or whenever they would meet part of it would be to to bring your firstborn child as a burnt offering now that that's a church service right talk about evil and yet it can get to that point and it's happened countless times throughout history And we're at a point in our culture and in our civilization where we see that progression happening as well, where evil is becoming more and more apparent and the enemy is being being emboldened, coming more and more into the open. And so this is why, as Ephesians 4 verse 27 tells us, do not give the devil a foothold. Now at some point this man has given the devil a foothold, and so having given the devil an inch, he has now taken a mile. And the same principle holds true in our personal lives. It holds true in our our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in the wider culture. We give the devil an inch, we give him a foothold, and he will very cunningly use that leverage to take a mile. He will always go further than we think. A Haitian pastor once shared the following illustration of this principle at work. You may have heard this story before. The pastor said, a certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000. Another man wanted very badly to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner finally agreed to sell the house for for half the original price with just one stipulation. He would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the door. Just one nail, and I'll sell it to you for half price. And so the poorer man agreed, what a deal, a thousand dollars, I get the whole house and you just own the one nail, that sounds like a bargain. And so he took over the house, and after several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, he found the carcass of a dead dog. He took that dead dog that was rotting and smelly, and he hung it up from the nail that he still owned while soon the house became unlivable the stench unbearable and the family was forced to sell the house back to the owner of the nail and the Haitian pastor concluded so too if we leave the devil with even one small nail in our life he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it making it unfit for Christ's habitation." It's a visceral story that makes a very important point. This demon-possessed man, kneeling before Jesus, he has given the devil one nail, then two, then three, until now his life is so utterly infested by demons that in verse 9, when Jesus asks him the question, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. So, it begs the question how how many exactly is a legion of demons? What is the number? Well, a full Roman legion had 6000 soldiers. And even if it was fewer than 6000 demons, we're told later on that the number of pigs that went off the cliff, we can safely assume each one of them having a demon in it was 2000 pigs that went off the cliff. So somewhere between 2,000 to 6,000 demons has taken up residence in just one man. That's a whole lot of evil in one man, isn't it? It's, It's overwhelming to think about what this means for this man's life, to have that much evil residing within him. Now, what is the effect of these evil spirits within the man's life? Well, let's continue our examination. In the next slide, if we have those up, we do. The next slide, we will see that this man had been chained many times, the text indicates. Here we see a shackle on his foot. Now, this may not even be accurate because the text tells us that this man from the demons has been given extraordinary strength with which those shackles could not even contain him and that he would even break them off of him. So he could break the chains and possibly even break the shackles right off of his his feet with supernatural strength. Now what had led to this man needing to be shackled? Well, undoubtedly we can read into this a little bit. That at some point at the beginning of this man's demonic possession, when the first one or two demons had entered him, he had started to have violent fits where he was now becoming a danger to the community around him. Undoubtedly, he had hurt people at some point. We don't know to what extent he possibly has even killed people. Whatever the case, he is now a clear menace and a danger to the point that he needs to be chained. And so here we see that the first direct influence of these demons in his life is that he has become a danger to both society and to himself. Now, at some point they had started to ratchet up the restraints because it says they couldn't hold him anymore. So perhaps they used ropes at the beginning, but now they've gone to the heaviest chains and shackles that the town has at their disposal, and even those couldn't hold him. No one else, it says, was strong enough to subdue him, and we can well imagine that there's probably more than a few men in that town who had been injured trying to hold this guy down, trying to subdue him. The closest comparison we can have to this kind of strength elsewhere in scripture is Samson. Isn't that interesting? That Samson's amazing strength came from the spirit of God filling him. But here we see the spirit of evil has filled this man. And in this way, he too has this superhuman strength. Now, in modern times, we would clinically diagnose this man as a psychopath. We would have him put in a straitjacket, locked up in a padded cell. That would be our solution for this man. Those weren't options back then, however. And so the best those people could do at this point, they can't chain him, they can't hold him, they can't tackle him. All they can do is drive him out of town. And so the guy has gone out of town into the wilderness and out there with no one else to hurt, we learn that the demons now turn the man even on himself. And the end of verse 5 tells us that he would cut himself with stones, self-harm, self-injury. Do you know what the statistics are on self-harm and suicide in Canada today? Have you looked at them recently? They are staggering, absolutely staggering. Every single year, nearly 20% of the population, 20% of people will deliberately engage in some form of self-harm, nearly 20%. The statistics are slightly higher for women than for men. That it's just over 20% of women will engage in this and about 17% of men will engage in some form of self-harm every single year. It can involve cutting and all sorts of different types of self-harm. Burning, repeated wall-punching, deliberately injuring oneself, starving oneself, and other forms of of self-mutilation that don't bear repeating. Furthermore, The stats on suicide since 2020 are just mind-boggling. They have skyrocketed over the last couple of years to the point where, according to Stats Canada, suicide is now the ninth highest cause of death in Canada. So when we rank all the things that people die from, you know, cancer is up at the top, number nine on that list is suicide. And they're saying that's going to go up, especially as doctor-assisted suicide, they're opening it up even further, promoting it even further. Those stats are only increasing as more and more people are choosing to end their own life. Now where is this coming from? Who is behind this push for people to turn on themselves, to harm themselves, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to you can kind of get fighting someone else or harming someone else, but, but to harm yourself, to turn against your own body, where does that come from? Where is that impulse to harm or even kill oneself? Well, ultimately, we know where it comes from. I suspect you already know the answer. Because whether directly, like this man, who's possessed by demons, or indirectly, through influence and an of forces at work manipulating us and 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 influencing us satan and his demons have been cleverly pushing and pulling and prodding both individual people and the whole of our society towards promoting and celebrating death rather than promoting and celebrating life john 10 verse 10 jesus lays it out for us very clearly what the enemy is about He said, the thief, referring to Satan, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now you'll remember, the Bible tells us he can also appear as an angel of light. And he is an expert at dressing up his lies in such a way that they seem like the truth. They seem appealing. They're going to be for your good. But no, in the end, it is always death and destruction that Satan is leading people towards, no matter how much he dresses them up. That's what this poor demonized man at Jesus' feet was experiencing. So first, he has evil spirits inhabiting him. Second, he's become a danger to both society and himself. And now third, he is living among the tombs. Now aside from the fact that graveyards and tombs are generally considered spooky, especially after dark, like in the opening story, back in that time, the Jews had an extra stigma against graveyards. For in that day, to even touch a grave, let alone a dead body, would mean the person was ceremonially unclean for seven days, following which, having come in contact with a grave, they would have to perform a lengthy purification ritual before being allowed back into polite society, to enter the synagogue, to enter the temple, things like that. But here we see this man is literally living and sleeping alongside the bodies and the bones of the dead in their crypts, in their graves, in their tombs. And it fits right in with the demonic obsession with death that we've just been talking about. So fourth thing we see, the condition of this man in the next slide. The terrifying slide is that this man lives in a state of constant inner turmoil. Verse 5 says... Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs. Now, I can just imagine a scenario back then where some teenage boys are getting together talking about the crazy wild man out in the tombs, and one of them dares the other, I dare you to go out there and take a look at the guy, and the other, no, I'm not going out there. You're scared. No, I'm not. You're scared. No, I'm not. You're scared. Well, prove it. And I can just imagine a couple of boys sneaking out in that direction, And then finally they they crawl up over and they they peek over the top towards where the tombs are and they're they're watching is he there and suddenly this guy comes out of a tomb screaming at them in their direction now in that scenario i imagine that those teenagers might just have run so fast that they actually passed the possum hunting farmer from the first story right that there's there's a there's something about this that there's a legend about this guy inhabiting the tombs and we can just imagine a scenario like that now i share that not to make light of it but to simply share that the reality for this man is one of constant state of living in this condition other people are like whoa is this real is he, is this just a legend Is this guy really out there? And yeah, it's verified. He's really out there. This man is really living this way. And day and night, he's in such agony, he is screaming perpetually, constantly. And so we see here that, yes, the demons have taken control of this man, but the real man is still present, experiencing this within. He is experiencing and feeling everything that these demons are inflicting upon him. The parallel account in Luke's Gospel adds just one more detail of this man's condition, and that is that he was naked, that he had not put on clothing for a long time, and our slides have modified that detail for obvious reasons. Here is a a man in a state that we cannot even imagine, a condition of affliction that we cannot even begin to comprehend what he was experiencing. But the one thing, the one detail of him being naked speaks to the nature of demons always leading people into sexual depravity. We could preach an entire another sermon right here on the multitude of ways that Satan and his demons use sex and sexual temptation to lead people into sin and ever-increasing depravity and devastating consequences. I suspect Many of you already know the sorts of things I could be referring to here, so we'll leave it at that for today. But to recap this man's condition, he's inhabited by up to 6,000 demons. He's become a menace to both society and himself. He lives amongst the tombs. He lives in a constant state of inner turmoil, turmoil, screaming day and night. Oh, and P.S., he's naked. He's a nudist. He's running around in this condition. Now, if there's... One man, one life that we could be justified in writing off. Just one person that we could safely say, you know what, this guy's beyond redemption. It was this man. Beyond redemption. But now let's shift our focus to Jesus, the man he is meeting. As we will see in this next slide, the man... Demon possessed as he is, is now kneeling before him, and Jesus is stepping towards this man rather than away from him. Mark five seven to ten continues. He shouted at the top of his voice, "What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me!" For Jesus had already said to him, "Come out of this man, you evil spirit." Then Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So we've seen this man's desperate condition. Now let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus' first response we see is mercy rather than condemnation. You see, Jesus, yes, he had the authority, he had the power to both condemn and send both the demons and this man straight to hell right then and there. He could have done it. And make no mistake, that is what they deserved. It is, in fact, the very thing that these demons, who are actually fallen angels, most feared. For they instantly recognized Jesus as the son of the most high God and they knew that their judgment to be cast and tortured into the lake of fire for eternity had already been pronounced by God. The demons know this. And so immediately seeing Jesus had come to their shores, they feared that his business with them, that the reason he had come was to cast them into hell before the appointed time. But what those demons couldn't possibly comprehend was that jesus had actually come to rescue their vessel the man that they inhabited the one that in their twisted thinking was just a useless carcass just someone to be used inhabited tortured and destroyed when it could no longer serve their purposes they no more thought of this man that they inhabited than a than a dog they could care less about that man. They couldn't comprehend that the very reason that Jesus had said the night before to his disciples, come, get in the boat, let's cross the lake, was to meet this man. To find this man, not to condemn him, or even the demons, at least not yet. But rather, it was Jesus' rescue mission of mercy. To seek and to save the lost and who could possibly be more lost than that man jesus had mercy on that man in that desperate of a condition jesus loved him he sought him he showed him mercy and now he finally has come to free him from his enslavement to satan and to give him a brand new life This is a picture of all of us, if we're humble enough to see it. For in this way we see ourselves in this demonized man. Oh, sure, yes, I will go to great lengths to explain how much better than this man I am. I have clothes on, for starters. But sin is sin in the eyes of the Lord, is it not? One sin is enough to condemn us before the Lord, is it not? That's all it takes for you and I to deserve the same condemnation and hell as this man. I am just as guilty as he, and so are you. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, yes, that is Satan, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. We are all the same. We are all, in one way or another, children of wrath, deserving of God's judgment. Oh, praise the Lord for his mercy, friends. Praise him for his mercy that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. This man, the worst of them, but when we have the humility to see we're no different. Whether we we are clothed in our right mind, not uh, possessed by demons, but if we are not in Christ, we are just as lost as that man was. Praise the Lord. He came to seek and to save sinners and to show them mercy. Even the people that we in our arrogance, may have written off. The second thing we see in Jesus' response is his divine power and authority. I want you to take note that this very same man who everyone else is scared to death of is now the very same man who is scared to death of Jesus. Well, actually, it's the demons who are scared to death of him, because unlike everyone else, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was, and knew exactly what Jesus was capable of. And so here they are groveling and begging for the same mercy that they are refusing to show to the man that they have possessed. Mark 5, 10, and 13 continues, And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us into the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, in this next slide, we'll see some cute little furry oinkers just minding their own business. Now, full disclosure here, I've, I've worked with pigs a lot. I, I really have a soft spot for pigs. I love them in all of their varieties. Sausage, ham, pork, um, especially bacon, I got a real soft spot for them. If there's truly innocent bystanders in this story, it's the pigs. But what the pigs actually demonstrate in this story is that this area east of the Sea of Galilee is known generally as the Decapolis, ten cities, the Decapolis, Deca being ten, And these pigs show that this is a much more Gentile region, as good Jews would never, ever have anything to do with pigs. They're unclean, they're not kosher, they would have nothing to do with pigs. Now, I have puzzled over both why the demons asked to go into the pigs and why Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs. And in all my studies this past week, the best answers I could come up with are these. First, for whatever reason, it seems that demons hate to be disembodied. We don't exactly know why, it just, again and again, there's other scriptures we could look at, the demons want to be associated, attached with something or someone. Whether that's just an animal or even an inanimate object, like a ceremonial drum or a voodoo mask, demons like to inhabit something. They hate being disembodied. Second, it seems that the reason Jesus allowed them to enter the pigs was to demonstrate first that people are more important than pigs, though Peter might disagree, but people are more important than pigs, and second, it fully demonstrates the evil instincts of demons. Their evil instinct is to ultimately destroy whatever they can. And so third, the impact of the drowning of the pigs was that it then brought out all of the people from the town to witness what had just happened, not to the pigs, though that might have been the reason they initially came, but Jesus wanted eyewitnesses of the man that he had just delivered. They wanted the pe- he wanted the people to see what he had just done in freeing, delivering this man. Mark 5, 14 continues, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside And all the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed, and in his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told about the pigs as well, and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now I want you to look at this next slide For just a moment i want you to look at this now fully liberated healed and redeemed man and consider how radically jesus has transformed him from his previous condition at every single level of his being for when the people saw him they saw a complete transformation rather than being violent he was now sitting calmly in his right mind at jesus feet Rather than being naked, he's clothed. Rather than screaming, he's in his right mind, calm, speaking normally. The man is so completely unrecognizable, for the better, that it is breathtaking. I'm sure the people who had even been those who had helped bind him at one point hardly could say, is this the same guy? The transformation is undeniable, but how did the very people who knew him best respond were they excited for him did they give him a high five did they give him a hug wow look at you your life is new again you're back no that was not their response was it sadly they see the man and they are afraid and furthermore they begin to plead with jesus to leave their region entirely now at first their response seems confusing so let me break it down for you Though not directly possessed by demons, most of the people of the Decapolis region were just as spiritually lost as that man had been. So when they recognized that a power even greater than those demons had arrived on their land, rather than bowing before Jesus in faith, they begged him to leave in fear. Quite simply, they didn't know what to do with a God-man They didn't know what to do with a man who had such authority. And so in fear of what else he might yet do, they ask him to leave. They beg him to go. It's a sad yet accurate picture of how many people today still respond to Jesus, is it not? Some people may even see that undeniable change that Jesus has made in the life of someone they know. A close friend a family member, even a spouse, but they are inwardly afraid, afraid what welcoming the presence of the God-man into their lives personally might mean. They're afraid what it might cost them. They're afraid what favorite sin they might have to give up, and so they too beg Jesus, leave me alone, depart, I don't want anything to do with you. Does that describe you today? I hope that it doesn't. But if it does, don't stay there. Instead, let's look back once more at the life of this delivered man in Jesus' arms and follow his example. Here's our final slide for today. Here, Mark 5, 18-20 concludes the story. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And so here in this picture, we see Jesus' third response. He gives the man a mission. This delivered man in sheer gratitude He's asking Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be your disciple. But the Lord has another mission for the man, for rather than telling him, sure, get on the boat, he tells the man, turn around, go home, and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Now, it's interesting that up until this point, Jesus had told people that he had healed up until now, keep it quiet, But remarkably, this is the very first time he directly tells someone, go and tell everyone what I have done for you. And wouldn't you know it, that this once demonized psychopath of a man became the very first missionary that Jesus sent out. The first missionary was this man. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a perfect illustration of every last one of us? As my son Theo recently said, Christianity isn't something you keep to yourself, you're supposed to give it away. And I said, you're getting it, Theo, and he wanted me to share that in my sermon sometime. So there it is, bud. Don't keep it to yourself, give it away. If Jesus has transformed your life, don't keep it to yourself. How can we keep it to ourselves? Has he saved you from the powers of hell? Has he saved your soul from that eternal destiny? Has he redeemed your life? Has he filled you with his spirit? Are you able to confidently say today, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world? If so, then you have the power in his name, in his spirit, to go out just like that man and tell others how much the lord has done for you don't keep it to yourself let's give it away let's pray heavenly father thank you for this incredible story thank you for all that it has taught us and demonstrates both your mercy to save to seek and to save those which were lost and it demonstrates your power to do so and furthermore it demonstrates the mission the purpose for those who are saved that like that man, we can now go out in your name and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for us. May we leave today with that being our mission and our calling as well, for we receive it as from you. In Jesus' name, amen.